listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. So turn to Luke chapter 2 as we are getting to the message a little sooner than we normally do because we want to spend time at the end of our message this morning with the Lord's Supper and in worshiping Jesus Christ our Savior. Now Silent Night, as we begin this series, we're looking at different Christmas carols, looking a little bit about their history, but even more than that, digging into the Word of God in which they, on which the basis of by which they have been written. And so we are not going to go line by line through Christmas carols in this in this sermon series, but we're going to use that as a springboard to go and get into the Word of God and to see uh, Jesus Christ uh, in print here and come alive in our hearts in a new way, in a fresh way. Well, Silent Night is probably one of the most recognized Christmas carols that this world would ever know, has ever known. It has been translated into at least 140 different languages. And on more than one occasion, listen to this, this is so cool, that on more than one occasion in, in, both, in, both, in both world wars, fighting at Christmas brought to a temporary halt by the troops putting down their weapons and singing Silent Night in their native language to one another across the enemy lines. Silent Night was written by a 22-year-old pastor by the name of Joseph Moore from Oberndorf, Austria in 1818. It perhaps would have never have been written and never been, had become the gift that it has to this world if it wasn't for a broken-down organ. As the story goes, some mice, some church mice, I guess, chewed through the bellows of an old organ just prior to Christmas, and there was no way that old organ would be repaired by the time of the Christmas services. The young pastor was very concerned that there wouldn't be the grand music uh, for the Christmas services with the organ and was saddened and concerned about this. And, and didn't know what he would do. A few days before Christmas, he went to go visit a young family in the church who had just given birth to a little baby. On his way back from visiting them and thinking about the Savior's birth and this little one's birth, and, and as he was walking home under a starry night, the song, Silent Night, started to come into his mind and became a six-verse poem that then he took to a dear friend of his who put the, the music to the lyrics, and on Christmas Eve, they sang Silent Night for the first time to the music uh, that, that we commonly now sing to the tune, but using a guitar, an instrument reserved mainly for saloons and taverns. That song started to spread throughout the Christmas season. 22 years later, King Wilhelm of Prussia declared that Silent Night be the first among all the Christmas carols sung at any public concert in Prussia. We love this carol. We hear it all the time. We sing it. Christmas wouldn't be Christmas, we would almost say, if it wasn't for the song Silent Night. It talks about this peaceful calmness, this silence, this, this, this beauty in which our Savior Jesus Christ was born. And yet, 
so oftentimes our lives this Christmas season is anything but consumed with silence and calmness, rather with weariness and busyness. In fact, our worship band here this morning, just even hearing of their busy lives, even this past week, as well as many of you others, as the Christmas chaos has started. Last night, I was up later than I normally am on a Saturday night because I got to go to Charlotte's Workplace's Christmas, um, Christmas banquet. In all of her years that she's worked, I've never been able to go to a Christmas banquet of hers because she worked for the government and they just weren't into throwing Christmas parties. But now, as she is working in the private sector, we got to go to a Christmas party. And, and it wasn't nearly as dead and as stiff as I thought it might be. Uh, some of you would know she now works at a funeral home, so I just had to throw that one in there. And, but I heard Laura, who was singing here this morning, was traveling this week with her work, and then her and her husband flew to Toronto. I think it was on Friday. Was it Friday you guys flew? I don't know where Laura is right now. Yeah. So, so they flew, got home last night. It was here early this morning. Like this is a season of the Christmas chaos. It has begun. And so oftentimes our lives don't reflect this nice little wonderful silent night. All is calm. Let's face it, Christmas we've become consumed in so many ways with wanting to have the nice or the perfect Christmas. And, and maybe this is what we imagine in our minds. This here is the ultimate. This is what we have in our minds as far as the perfect Christmas. But this is oftentimes the reality, right? Yeah, it's just not as perfect as we thought. I love that tree. On the, well, I love both Christmas trees. You can tell that was the husband's turn uh, this year, right? Or Christmas dinner. Beauty. Perfection. Everyone getting along. I mean, just imagine this. I mean, everyone around the table loving each other, eating and eating and eating, and no one gains any weight, and you just enjoy this wonderful food. And yet, sadly, this is oftentimes, again, the reality of what it really is like. Yeah, Brussels sprouts and turkey in a can, right? You know, I mean, and, 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 and kids getting sick and, you know, and the dog ruining things and family strife. Yeah, sadly, what we picture in our minds isn't a reality. Truth be known, there are those of you sitting here today and you're not looking forward to Christmas. In fact, you hate this season. Maybe it's been a number of years since you felt this way, or maybe it's this year for the first time. You just have this blockage. You just have this kind of just angst and this just, you know, it's been a year. It's been a difficult year. And, and even though uh, for some of you here, and, and you would know people like this, you're going to go through the motions. You're going to smile. You're going to try to get through it. You're going to muscle through all of this. And yet, on the outside, you're smiling. But on the inside, you're saying, bah, humbug. You're miserable. You're empty, you're overwhelmed, you're sad, you're lonely, you're tired, you're weary, you're mourning, you're discouraged, you're distracted. I talked to a man this week, and as I started chatting with him, he got teared up as he was talking about this will be the first Christmas without his wife, who passed away this past year. Christmas, he said, will be very different this year. It's my prayer that none of us would overlook all of this desire for perfection and beauty and busyness and all of that, that instead that this Christmas season and starting today, folks, we would be so overwhelmed with Christ, so overwhelmed with Jesus. And so let's begin this Christmas season by reading the Christmas story from Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 2. 
we're going to start by reading the first seven verses. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in a sw in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn three truths that we're going to look at today and i encourage you to write them down as well they'll be available this week on on our website uh, along with the message but three truths that will allow us to sleep in heavenly peace three truths that that i trust will will give you much encouragement will give you challenge and will allow us to look at Christmas slightly or maybe majorly different in a different set of lens and allow God to do his work that will allow us, like that line in the hymn from, or the carol of Silent Night, to sleep in heavenly peace. When we see everything that's going on in our world, though, however, it's easy to get discouraged. Just watch the news. Just watch all of the different, just even this Christmas, hearing of certain Christmas carols that are being banned because they could be seen as offensive. And, and, and we just see what is going on in our world um, economically and, and, and morally and spiritually in, in the life of the church in North America even as well. And it we can become so discouraged and, and feel so powerless and so empty in being able to do anything about it. But you know what, folks? Things weren't any different in the time that Jesus was born. It was up it was turmoil, there was confusion. It says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus, his name was originally Octavian. Of course, he would want to change it. Who would want to be called Octavian, right? And, and so he, he was the ruler of the entire Roman world, which was basically the whole enti entire inhabited world was under his control. Historians tell us that he was a natural fighter. He just had a way to be able to, he fought and clawed and scratched his way to the top. He was the, the great nephew or, or the great nephew of Nero. And he established a rule and an authority in Rome that would go on for centuries. When he came to power, he asked the Roman Senate, like this just shows how, 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 how powerful and how mighty this guy is, in, in that he asked the Roman Senate to give him a name that would be adequate to who he was. And the word king didn't cut it. The word emperor or dictator just didn't say it enough. And so the Roman Senate agreed and chose and voted, and he accepted the name Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus, well, what does that mean? Well, Caesar Augustus means revered. It means of the gods. It is a power name. It is, it, it is this name of honor, which is holy and revered and of the gods. By the, by the time that the book of Luke was written, by the time the, the gospel of Luke was written, there were Greek regions throughout the Roman Empire that actually changed the date of the new year to September 23rd, which was his birthday, as a way of saying that when Caesar Augustus was born, that is when time began. He was this powerful, this mighty man in history, and yet truths that will allow us to sleep in heavenly peace is a reminder that even the high, the mighty, the influential, the powerful 
are simply pawns in the hand of God. When we look at rulers and authorities and those who are popular and those who are making the millions and doing all of these great and mighty things, the high and the mighty, the proud, are merely pawns in the hand of God. He was referred to by some as Caesar Augustus, savior of the world. And that is why Luke in his gospel goes to such extents to show Jesus as the savior of the world. We see this mighty man. When he died, people were comforted by the fact and by the reality, or this is what they actually believed, that that even though he died because he was a god, he actually didn't die, that he was actually still alive, and so they were comforted by that. Today, Caesar Augustus is known mainly and more recognizably for the one who issued the decree. Selfishness and greed, sending everyone to their hometown to get registered for a census to be taken so that he could not only number those in his kingdom, but he could tax in a greater way those in his kingdom. And so that even included a blue-collared carpenter by the name of Joseph, along with Mary, who, was he, who he was engaged to, who was extremely pregnant forced to travel 90 miles. There was no appeal. There was no way of, ah, excuse me just for a moment. My wife is like eight and a half months pregnant, or she is coming full term. Is there a way that we don't have to go to our hometown? Is there a way we could get out of this? There was no way you could get out of this one. And so they went. Here's something that we can learn. Those intent on making a name for themselves, living for their glory, their fame, will one day be humbled. That's just a true fact. You see it all throughout, and we will see it one day finally. If you are living even today for your own glory, your own fame, you will one day, perhaps not in this world, not in this life, you will one day be humbled. We will all be humbled as we stand before God. But will it be him as our savior or as our judge? Little did high and mighty Caesar know that he was fulfilling a prophecy. He was just a pawn in the hand of God. He was fulfilling a prophecy that the prophet Micah had given 700 years earlier, saying that the Messiah would be born in the town of David, in the town of Bethlehem. He thought the people were all pawns in his hand, but in reality, he was simply a pawn in the hand of God, fulfilling a greater purpose. Second thing we see here that will allow us to sleep in heavenly peace is that God uses the seemingly insignificant and powerful ways. Look at in verse 4. I'm going to read this because it's just so good. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. He was registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in his swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Caesar's, Caesar Augustus' rule reached all throughout the Roman Empire over to Palestine into the region of Nazareth to this village carpenter who was engaged to his wife. But it wasn't a joyful and a exciting engagement. Their lives were filled with complications, innuendo, questions, cynicism. As she became pregnant before they were officially married, the rumors, the gossip, the disbelief, and then her making some story up. You reread this in, in the Gospel of Matthew. 
And no doubt people thought she was making some story up about an angel that came to see her and that she was carrying the Messiah. What seemed like a very insignificant and, and, and nothing of a couple in the Roman Empire, poor, uneducated, simply pawns in the hand of Caesar, these seemingly insignificant people gave Christ to this world were used in a mighty and a powerful way. And then upon them arriving in Bethlehem, where no one seemed to care, the only place they could find for her to rest and for her to give birth to her little baby was the stable. There was no room for them in the inn. There was no place for them. I've kind of questioned and I've kind of thought to myself, well, if he's going to his hometown, wouldn't he have siblings parents, other relatives that would also perhaps already still be, would be living in Bethlehem? Wouldn't there be others there that would be concerned? But there were Mary and Joseph alone, confused, wondering what's going on. Here it was one of the most exciting moments of their lives, and they were all alone with some animals in a smelly stable. Speaking of smelly stables, every year... Our family loves to go to the Armstrong Fair, September long weekend. It's the opportunity to get our redneck on, you know, and, and just go. And, and um, Charlotte, uh, my wife, and our daughter Clarice love to go into the barns and look at all the animals. Charlotte and Clarice weren't able to go this year, so Nate and I went. And so I did take a picture of the llama just to prove I actually stepped barely inside of one of those barns because I don't care for it too much. I mean, I don't need to see every year cows, calves, goats, llamas, the pigs or the cute little piglets. You know, I just don't need to do that. I mean, it's just the smell. It just does nothing for me. Uh, and, and, and Nate is with me on that. And so we just go and we just, ladies, go have your fun and we'll go and, you know, find something else to view or, or to have some fun. Um, I do, however, though, I do break down my barriers and, and I do go into the poultry barn. I have to do this every year because I, I'm making a video compl compilation, I guess you could say. Every year I have to go in there and oftentimes I go like this because I don't really care for the smell very much. But I have to go to the roosters and, and, and you'll see one of the videos that, that I, I took. It, it's sideways, but you'll enjoy it. Yeah, and there's no volume, so let's uh, run that again. Yeah, I, I, okay, so I'm sick, okay? I, I, just, I, I just enjoy um, standing there, you know, kind of like, okay, come on, come on, do it, do it, do it, right in the camera, look in the camera, you know, and, and you know, just, just yeah, I, I, I can show it to you later. We can have a good time. I've got, yeah, this year's was awesome. And, um, you know, anyway, so, um, you know, I endure the smell just so I'm able to get that. Now, now could you imagine going into one of these stables full term, and all of a sudden realizing it's time. And to give birth to a baby, I mean, the Armstrong Fair would be a lot more of a clean and a sanitized stable than the one that Jesus would have, was, was born in. This would have been for Mary and Joseph a dirty, smelly, cold, and a dark place, and they were all alone. How do we know they were all alone? Verse seven, it says that she gave birth to her son, but then it says she wrapped the baby in strips of cloth. Now, entered in, in, in cultural tradition there, that was never the job of the mother to wrap 
the child in the, in the swaddling clothes or the strips of cloth and how they would wrap that little baby up. That was always the job of a family member or a midwife. And so this telling us, this is one of the most lonely verses that you'll find in the Bible. Because here they were, this great celebration, and they were all alone. No one there to help. Such an exciting time, and yet such a lonely and a confusing time. And yet, Joseph and Mary give us a picture of how the gift of grace comes. The gift of grace comes, not to the high and the mighty and the self-sufficient, but to those who are needy, those who are desperate, those who are lonely, those who are confused. What did we learn in our sermon message series this summer on the Beatitudes? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the way we come into the kingdom. That's the way we receive the gift of grace from our God, by being poor in spirit, by recognizing our poverty before God, that there is nothing that we can do. Biblical Christianity begins this way and this way only. Eternal life, forgiveness of your sins, begins with a heart of humility, understanding that, yes, we may be small and insignificant, and yet God desires to do great and mighty things, first of all, by saving our souls for his purposes, forgiving us our sins, but then also giving us a mission and a reason and a purpose, which is to make Jesus famous throughout this world. Anything short of that is failing the mission that we have been called to as his followers. There that night, the incarnation took place. God taking on human flesh. Mary held in her arms the thumping heart of God. You think about that. They appeared to be pawns in the hands of Caesar, and yet Caesar, it was he who was pawns, a pawn in the hand of God. Caesar was a man who thought that he could become a god, and some thought he became a god but in the nativity, because of Joseph and Mary, their faithful obedience, we see God becoming a man. Lord willing, next week we're going to look at just some mind-blowing truths about the incarnation in, in a great way. But the story of God becoming a man like us means everything. We have a high priest who can sympathize with everything that we go through, yet was without sin. Their faith, their obedience to press on and trust God when they were alone, confused, and their plan wasn't working out, their hopes and dreams were, were dashed and destroyed, ended up meaning that they could give the entire world, you and I today, the greatest gift of all. And God wants you and me to be gospel good news carriers in the same way that Joseph and Mary were through faithful obedience by being available, being humble, being willing to be alone, being willing to go through suffering and hard times, which is a promise for God's children. But in and through those times, he meets us. Folks, the battle is real. The truths that will allow us to sleep in heavenly peace, we look at this thirdly and finally here this morning. We can sleep in heavenly peace knowing the battle is real, but the victory is assured for those who belong to Jesus Christ. So here we have this sweet scene, which is now in so many ways has been romanticized in our culture with nativity scenes. I, I kind of counted throughout our house that, look at this, 
I think this is over 20 years old now. Hopefully I don't drop it. I will have, uh, yeah, it would not be good, but you're supposed to, you know, turn it up and... So nice, hey? So I think we have at least, I counted four nativity sets in our house. You probably have that many or more. You drive around and you see those scenes. And I think even downtown Kelowna, I think there's a nativity set up this year. And we somehow have taken and we have turned this into something kind of nice and kind of romantic and it's heartwarming, you know, that, that wonderful scene of Mary and Joseph, the stable, the manger, the sheep. We'll get to the shepherds in a few weeks. What a sweet scene. However, if we were to take and peel back the curtains to see what was really going on, the story behind the story, folks, prepare to have your minds blown. What we have taken and romanticized and we think of so fondly started a war in the cosmic realm that still rages today. And I trust that today through God's word we will see what was really going on that night that Jesus Christ was born. We can find aspects and, and, and references to the nativity, to the birth of Christ all throughout the word of God, it being promised in the Old Testament, delivered in the Gospels, and even in Paul's writings. We see all kinds of mentions and, 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 and uh, God's word pointing out to us the incarnation. But one would never think that perhaps the book of Revelation would also reveal a nativity scene what really was taking place that night. Turning your Bibles, you got to open this. This is mind-blowing. you got to look at these verses, and you got to just be prepared to be encouraged, challenged, and reminded as we get to see the Christmas story in the book of Revelation. There was a war that was taking place that night in the heavenly realms. It's a war and a battle that continues to this day. So let's look at Revelation chapter 12. It looks at the birth of Christ from the perspective of the spiritual realm, what was really taking place behind the curtains. I'm going to read it starting at verse 1, the first five verses. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great dragon with seven heads, with ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. But she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to heaven and to his throne. Have you ever heard the Christmas story read from the book of Revelation? What a stunning description of what was happening that night that Jesus was born and even prior to that of the battle that was ensuing. The woman here in that vision that we see here, uh, that, that in this vision that God gave to the Apostle John, represents the nation of Israel. Roman Catholics would refer to this woman as Mary. But clearly throughout scripture, and here's something important, folks. Here's something important when it comes to reading and understanding and interpreting scripture. You interpret scripture with scripture. 
And so you take the book of Revelation especially, and the best place to look at interpreting that is through the lens of the Old Testament. Scripture interprets Scripture. And so here we end up seeing all of these references through in the Old Testament, and there are many that refer to Israel as a nation, as a woman, as a pregnant nation, as a pregnant woman. Look at, I mean, we even see it here in, in verse 1. It says, clothed with the sun, with the moon, under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Well, this is a reference to Genesis 37, to the 12 sons of Jacob. And remember Joseph's dream? Joseph was one of his sons, and he had the dream that, that all his brothers would bow down to him. And, 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 and yeah, that, that, that's where this comes from, the, the 12 sons of Jacob, the 12 tribes of Israel. And all through the Old Testament, from Jeremiah, uh, Isaiah, uh, Micah, Hosea, Israel is referred to as a woman in birth pains. A wo woman who is carrying the seed of the Messiah, the one that was promised in Genesis 3. And so here, the child in Revelation that we see here is the seed of the woman. It's Jesus. It's Messiah. It's the Son of God. And we see him promised from Genesis 3 right through until it happened in Bethlehem that night. The child was none other than Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, the long-awaited Messiah. And for centuries, God's word promised his people Messiah would come. And they suffered and they waited as a woman giving birth in labor pains. 4,000 years had passed that's a long time to be in labor, right? You hear sometimes of, uh, of, of uh, pregnant ladies who are in, you know, in labor, and it can go on maybe for a few hours, but sometimes it can even go on much longer than that, not to scare you, Carrie, of what's coming soon, and we're all so excited for you. 4,000 years of labor pains, of, of people calling and waiting out, oh God, when will this one come? When will the promised one come? And so in verse 3, we see the dragon standing ready to devour. And who is the dragon? Well, it's pretty easy to find out who the dragon is. It tells us in verse 9, it's the devil, the deceiver of the world. And so we have this huge picture. I mean, Google this. Go, go home later on and do a little internet search, Revelation 12, and search on images, and you will see a lot of bizarre images. I mean, just of this multi-head dragon and its tail, and it's red. I think that's where they get the color red for the Satan suits that you see people, or the devil suits that people, you know, wear uh, to depict the devil because he's a red dragon here. I don't know where they get the pitchfork from. Uh, but, you know, I mean, and, and so right from the birth of Jesus, we see that the dragon is trying to destroy the Son of God. This is what's really going on. Yes, the angels sing, but yes, in the spiritual realm, there's a battle going on. We see it in Matthew 2, where the dragon inspires Herod to have all the males two years and younger killed in the vicinity of Bethlehem, and we have that great murderous activity that took place, but Mary and Joseph escaped to Egypt. Then in Matthew 4, we see that the dragon tried to distract Jesus with the temptation in the wilderness, but it didn't work. Jesus met every one of those temptations with what? The Word of God. He used the Word of God. He uses Scripture to be able to withstand the attack. That is the way that we stand today. And he said, it is written, it is written, it is written. The dragon tried to discredit him in Matthew chapter 12, causing the Pharisees to accuse him 
um, saying that his power came from the power of demons, of Beelzebub is where his power came from. So they tried to discredit him as not being the son of God. Then in Luke chapter 4, the dragon we see incited an angry mob to try to kill Jesus, to, to push him over a cliff and have him done away with. But Jesus was able to walk through that crowd. Again, trying to destroy and defeat Jesus. And finally, the dragon thought he won. When Jesus was betrayed, how the dragon put the thoughts of betrayal into Judas's mind and inspired him to betray his very own. They had Jesus arrested, beaten, nailed to a cross. His death was verified. The dragon won. And there was a three-day party celebration of the devil and the demons thinking that they had won. But three days later, as we know, the tomb was empty. Amen? Jesus triumphed over everything. Everything that dragon tried to do and the dragon's power was broken at the cross where sin and death were defeated. Today, folks, we have to realize, though, that the dragon is trying to do the same to the children of God. Folks, we're in a battle, and the battle is real. 1 Peter 5, 8, even in our small group study, we were looking at this this past week. We have an adversary, our, the devil, prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking to discourage, distract, destroy, defeat the child of God today. And in some of you, he's getting, getting some good headway. And it's so easy to allow him to, to gain control in our minds, in our thinkings, to discourage us, to distract us. The Bible says in, in Revelation, God's word says in Revelation 12, verse 10, just a little later on from what we read here, it says that he is the accuser of those in Christ. He is the accuser of the brothers. He accuses us day and night. He's the adversary. He's the deceiver. He wants you to feel so unworthy and so useless and so good for nothing that there's nothing good about you and that God could never and will never forgive you. He'll forgive others, but he won't forgive you. You ever hear those voices? You ever have those thoughts? He wants us to feel so unworthy of the love of God. What a lie, what a lie. He wants to distract us with busyness, living out our agenda rather than his agenda, going and living and doing great things and asking God to bless us rather than doing the things that God wants us to do first and foremost in our lives. And we get it so backwards. We set our agenda, our course we don't even really ask the Lord. We just ask him to come along and bless us and to give us, you know, like, you know, nice little snowflakes to make us feel good sort of thing. Like, I mean, it's, it's just so backwards. He tries to deceive us and tempt us to sugarcoat sin, to justify it, to excuse it and say, well, everyone struggles. And, you know, that isn't that big of a deal. He works to deceive us. And yet we can overcome this dragon, folks. We can overcome the evil one by the blood of the lamb that was shed, and that's why we need to worship soon. That's why we need to remember the gospel. We don't need to be overwhelmed by discouragement and defeat and all that has happened in our past or as we look ahead to the future and, face, and be in despair. Instead, we can look to Jesus and be overwhelmed with the truth of the gospel of what he has done and who he loves, everyone every one of us, and how he desires everyone to call upon his name and be saved. We overcome by the blood of the lamb and through the word of God 
by knowing and repeating and defeating the enemy through the mighty word of God. Folks, this isn't the baby in the manger that, that we, we don't stay there in our worship. We celebrate, we rejoice, but we worship the Savior on the cross. This is the Jesus exalted at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. And someday, this Jesus will return. And he will rule the world with a rod of iron, which represents irresistible power, with perfection, with swift justice and judgment. The outcome of what Jesus will do is not in doubt. It's a guaranteed victory. As you keep reading through the book of Revelation, you get to Revelation 20, we see that the dragon will once and for all be cast into the lake of fire. And then Jesus, we will see the coronation of Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords over a new heaven and a new earth. The dragon knows his doom. He knows the time is short, and so he's amping up the heat. And we need to stand strong. We need to know the battle is real. But victory is assured for those who trust in Jesus. Are you trusting him today? You trusting him with your past in that he has forgiven you of, of your sin if you've come to him in that way? Are you trusting him in your present in, in giving you the daily power and the strength and the victory through being fed in the word of God, by being in fellowship with other believers? If you're not, if you're, if you're just running solo, if you're on an island, you're in trouble. And we need one another. He's given us the body of Christ. Time is short. He's turning up the heat. Satan couldn't kill the woman. He couldn't kill Israel. Look at all the attacks throughout the, the history. This has been a hated nation from the very beginning. Why? Because Satan, the dragon, has hated him and has tried to, de tried to destroy him over and over again. But he won't. He won't. He can't. He could not stop the Savior of the world at the cross. And he cannot and will not be able to stop the King of kings and the Lord of lords from coming and destroying the dragon and his demons once and for all. New heaven, new earth, no end. That's what's coming. You can sleep in heavenly peace because we know it's going to end well. Getting there, it's going to be tough. Every one of us. We will walk through the valleys of discouragement, the shadow of death. But who is with us? Jesus savior of this world and so folks we don't just worship the baby in the manger but the savior of the world who has and will continue to triumph over all things yes the battle is real but victory is assured when we look at a world trying to sort out all of its issues <laughs> we try to sort out all of our issues and we can't make sense of everything that's what happened and and oftentimes i, I think like any one of you it's so easy to start thinking every one of us why would God allow this? Why would God allow this? And yet as we open up the pages of scripture like we have here today, we see a drama unfolding. When we see with spiritual eyes this drama between good and evil, the battle is real, but victory is assured. We know how it ends. It ends in victory. You see how the birth of a baby born in Bethlehem brought the Savior to the world and continues to do that today. Today, I speak to those going through times of discouragement, despair, distraction. You've not only just been tempted to sin, you've given in to those areas of sin. 
Perhaps today you're feeling some distance. You know Christ is Savior, but you have allowed a distance to happen. It's time to come home. It's time to return back to him. What do we return to him in worship and adoration, in repentance, asking him to forgive us? Asking him to do a new work, a fresh work in our lives this Christmas season. But do we return? Or do we run back to him? That we would reaffirm our trust in God, that he is in control. Would we be praying, oh God, would this Christmas season be different here on December 2nd, 2018, that, that we started crawling out of that hole, that we're coming to worship Jesus Christ, the Savior of this world. Go ahead, Darren, and sing this over us. Silent night, holy night, Son of God, love's pure light, Radiance beams from thy holy face. With the dawn of redeeming grace, Jesus, Lord, at thy birth, Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. Let's pray together. Oh God, it's so humbling to accept that your son came to this earth in the person of Jesus Christ to live the way that we were ultimately created to live, but that we could never live on our own, who died the death that each one of us deserves to die, but then to rise out of the tomb defeating sin and death. God, we're overwhelmed with the fact that you knew our condition was so desperate that you were willing to go to this extent to reach and to rescue all who would believe. For those here today, God, I pray, who've never believed in you as their Savior and their Lord, oh, would this be the day of their salvation? Turning from sin and asking you to forgive their sins and receiving you as Lord and Savior of their lives, willing to live the life in obedience to your word that you call them to live. For the distracted believer here today, God, I pray that today would be the U-turn, that we would turn and we would run to this Jesus, the Savior of this world, who is so much bigger. This world and all that we're facing, we look in through such a small window through, with such narrow vision, and would we see the greater picture of what's going on here? It's not about paying bills and earning an income and a nice retirement. It's so much bigger. It's so much more cosmic and eternal. And would we be blown away that God was willing to control the events of human history? That God, you were willing to 
bring this world to this place and even use rulers and authorities to accomplish your purposes. And God, it's even more mind-blowing that you would want to use people like us, like us here today, to give Christ the hope to this world, the truth to this world, and the only way to be saved, the only way to heaven. You've given us, you've entrusted us this message. Would you meet us here today as we worship you? We're going to spend some time together in worship, and the Lord's Supper will be available. And God's word reminds us and instructs us that we ought to do this on a regular basis as believers in Christ to remember, especially at Christmas, Jesus not just in the stable, but Jesus on the cross, whose blood was shed so our sins would be forgiven, whose body was broken, suffering the pain and the torture that we so deserve. He was broken for us. He was wounded for us. And by that, we are healed. By that, we are forgiven. By that, we have new life. And so this is a table for those who have trusted their lives to Jesus Christ. And perhaps you've just done that today. If you've just done that today, please tell me. I'd love to hear or tell someone who, you, who brought you today. We'd love to be able to talk with you and pray with you and encourage you. But would this be a time of worship, of self-examination? God's word is clear that we ought to examine ourselves before we partake. Examining our lives to see if there's areas of sin we need to confess and we need to repent, we need to make right. Don't feel pressure to come forward to take the Lord's Supper. This is, this is an important moment. This is a, a blessed moment. And yet we need to make sure that we've examined our lives in that way. I encourage you to do that. And so God, even now we come to celebrate your son remember what he's done and I pray that today would be a walk of faith for all of us that we would trust you with the stuff we're dealing with we would trust you with what has happened in our past that we're forgiven we would trust you that you are with us now and you will be with us for the future in all things oh would this be a walk of worship a time of celebration for your church would you meet us here we pray in Jesus name amen